You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 7 and 8 together. Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's read verses 9 through 11 as well. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's bow together before we begin. Our Father, we have sung to you this morning in worship and in our song that truth which you have revealed to us. We have spoken to you things that are true about you and your works and your glory and your majesty and your love for us in Christ. And we would never know those things apart from the revelation of yourself in creation and of your plan of redemption and of your person and your nature in the Word of God. And so we can only look to Scripture with confidence for a revelation of who you are. And we can only come to Scripture and expect with confidence to hear the voice of our God. And so now having spoken to you and sung to you, we ask that you would speak to us through the pages of Scripture. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have uh, become familiar with the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts and the time we spent in the book of Acts. And as we went through there, we got to know him rather well. We got to see some of his character attributes. We saw his integrity. We saw his, his ability to think quickly under pressure. We witnessed Paul's almost unbreakable tenacity and his willingness to suffer. But of all the things that we saw about his character in the book of Acts, we saw something that was revealed to us about Paul only really dimly, and that was his love. But when you read his writings and the books that bear his name in the New Testament, that is where we get a picture of Paul as a loving individual that is second to none. There were a lot of things about Paul that we were able to admire, but as you read his writings, it is difficult to imagine a single book that he wrote where he does not mention his love or expound upon his love at great depth. And that's a considerable, something that's considerable really when you think back to who Paul was before he got saved. When you remember what he was like on the road to Damascus, that he was once a persecutor, a violent aggressor, a hateful individual toward Christians. When you think of who he was before he got saved and then you compare his writings and his life after the Damascus Road, one thing that stands out about Paul is that love that he had. He seemed to have a love for all people, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. He loved Gentiles and gave his life in the ministry of the Gospel to Gentiles as the Apostle to the Gentiles. He seemed to love, we know that he loved even his kinsmen according to the flesh, his fellow Jews. He even at one time in the book of Romans talks about being willing to be accursed from Christ himself if only his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh could be saved. He had a love even for his enemies. He never reviled in return. He never spoke evil of his enemies. He had this ability to take beatings and sufferings given out at their hands 
as they opposed the gospel and he returned hatred, he turned love for their hatred. He just was a man of, of incredible depth of love. And so it shouldn't surprise us as we read the book of Philippians that we might see in the book of Philippians a statement or an explanation of his love for this church in Philippi. This was one of his most beloved churches. These people had served with him. They had prayed for him. They had sacrificed to, to contribute to his ministry. And even while he was in prison in Rome, they had sent a beloved brother, Epaphroditus, from Philippi to Rome to minister and to serve Paul. And with Epaphroditus came a very generous gift from the Christians in Philippi. And so Paul, as he writes the book of Philippians, he right at the beginning in these opening verses, 1 through 11, he expresses his love for these Christians. And you're going to see the theme of love come up again and again in the book of Philippians. But here it is drawn before our attention this morning in verses 7 and 8. And I want you to look at what Paul writes. And we're going to, I'm going to read these verses again. And then we're going to notice three things. We're going to notice the feeling of Christian love, the fellowship of Christian love, and then the fountain of Christian love. Verse 7, For it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We notice first of all the feeling of Christian love. It is right, Paul says, for me to feel this way about you. Dikaios is the word for right. And it means not just merely appropriate, as if Paul were saying, look, it's appropriate for me to feel this way about you. But dikaios refers to something that is morally right, almost obligatory, something that is required. It is right, it is required, it is obligatory that I would feel this way about you, that I would have this kind of affection and love for you. Now you say, Jim, that kind of blunts the force of the statement of love, doesn't it? If I walk up to my wife and I say, I love you, I'm actually obligated to love you. It's the morally right thing for me to do, to love you. It's required of me that I do such. She might rightfully ask, does he love me because he has to? Or does he love me because he wants to? And what would the answer be? Both. It is morally obligatory for me to love my wife. And even if she were unlovable, I would still be required to love her. But the fact that I love her quite willingly does not minimize my love, nor does it make it somehow feigned or somehow insincere or forced. And that's really what Paul is saying. After all that you have done in providing for my needs, in praying for me, in our fellowship, in our love for one another, in ministering to me, it is the right thing for me to love you. How can I help but love you? How can I help but feel this way about you? I'm under obligation to do this. And it was right that Paul loved them. It's right that I feel this way about you. The word feel, if you have a King James or New King James, it probably says think, doesn't it? It's right for me to think this way. The NIV and the NASB says feel. It's right for me to feel this way. Well, which is it? Is it think or feel? Is it right for me to think this way about you or is it right for me to feel this way about you? And the answer is it's actually both. It's kind of an interesting word. It's the word phaneo, phaneo. And it refers to the disposition of the mind or the attitude. It's, a, it's kind of a neat word in the New Testament. It means to judge something, to set your mind on something, or to be, listen, mentally disposed towards something. Now, it's used 26 times in the New Testament. 23 of the 26 times it's used, it's used by Paul, which tells you something about how Paul viewed the mind. He spoke a lot about what we were to think about, how we were to be mentally disposed toward things. Of the 23 times that Paul uses that word in the New Testament, almost half, 10 of them, are used in these four short chapters in the book of Philippians. I told you that this book was all about the mind of Christ. That's what Paul talks about. 
I had the Bible professor that taught me the book of Philippians. He used to say, Philippians is a book of Christian psychology. And he's right. The book of Philippians talks a tremendous amount about the mind. Over one-third of the times that that word used in the New Testament, it is used in the book of Philippians to speak about the mind. I told you the book of Philippians is about the mind of what? Of whom? Of Christ. It's about the mind of Christ. In fact, the same word is used in chapter 2, verse 5. Let this attitude, let this mind, let this way of thinking, this mental disposition be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In the book of Philippians, Paul tells us what to think, how to think, what not to think about, what to think about, and what to model our thinking after. And it's no secret and it's no surprise that when in a book that talks so much about how to think and what to think, that it would also talk so much about joy. Do you think the two might be connected? Thinking and joy and what we think on and how we think and how we model our thinking after Christ would influence the joy that we have as Christians? That's what Paul says. It's right for me to think or to feel this way about you all. And he's talking about his own feelings. And it's in Scripture, a lot of times, heart and mind are connected together and they're used as synonyms. That's why the Bible says that you and I should guard our hearts. Why? Because out of it flows all of the issues of life. We guard our hearts, which is a sort of a synonym or a figurative way of talking about the innermost part of our emotions, our will, our thinking, our thoughts, our desires. We are to guard that. And our hearts and our minds go together so that how we think influences how we behave. And if we think right, we'll behave right. If we think right, we will conduct ourselves right. We will live right. And if you and I can just get the mind of Christ, then everything else in the book of Philippians becomes cakewalk. It's easy if we can just think like Christ thinks. So Paul says, it's quite right for me to think or feel this way about all of you. Why? Because he says, in my imprisonment and the defense of the gospel, you're partakers of grace with me. Now friends, what I want you to notice is how Christian love is a feeling, is it not? Is not Christian love that you have for your brother in Christ a feeling? And it is obligatory, is it not? And I, I point this out because there is a sense in which I'm required by God to love you, lovable or not. And you're required by God to love me, lovable or not. And you are required by God to love one another. And you are required by God to love that unlovable person that's sitting in front of you right now. That's God's... Ray, the person behind you is nodding their head. You're required by God to love even the most unlovable Christian. Now, you don't do that by saying, I'm going to force love out of me. Is that how you love each other? Or is it is it okay for me just to say, alright, I'll love Dave. May not like it, but I will love him as an act of my intellect and an act of my will. Or is there a legitimate way in which we do have an emotion of love for one another? Do you notice that it's both? Do you notice that Paul is talking about a mental disposition that he has toward these people? It is right for me to think, to have this attitude toward you. The right attitude that you should have for your Christian brother is, this is a person for whom Christ died. This is a person with with whom I have eternal and lasting and infinite fellowship in the Gospel and in grace and in Christ. And when you begin to think rightly about your brother and sister in Christ, then you begin to love them. And if you have a hard time loving somebody, then maybe it's because you're not thinking rightly about them. You don't have the mind of Christ toward them. So it's both a thinking and it is a feeling. It's not just a feeling. It's not just, oh, I have this warm, fuzzy, sort of brotherly, shmarmy, gushy love for somebody. 
There are times when you love somebody as an act of the will because you have a mental disposition toward them that is one of affection. That's the feeling of Christian affection. Now, why did Paul have this? Well, this leads us to the second thing, which is the fellowship of Christian affection. Look what he says at the end of verse 7. Because I have you in my heart. That's a, that's the, that's a way of saying, and we use that today, I love you with all my heart. And, and this is how Paul would say it. I have you in my heart. That is, I have you at the center of my emotions, the center of my will, the center of my thinking, the center of my being. It's figurative, not just for the, the center of life, but the center of thinking and emotion. I have you in my heart. Why? The fellowship of Christian affection. Because in my imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel, what? You are fellowshippers, partakers with me of grace. And here we're introduced to this whole concept of fellowship, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. We sort of fleshed it out. What Christian fellowship is, it's an active participation in something with somebody else. Remember the business illustration that I gave you? Two guys pitch in their money. They go into business together. Both of them buy an interest in it. And so both of them actively participate. They would be said to have fellowship with one another in the business. In Christianity and in Christ and in grace and in the Gospel, we have an active participation with one another. How did the Philippians actively participate with Paul? In his imprisonment and in the confirmation and defense of the Gospel, they were partakers of grace with him. Notice first his imprisonment. Now, if somebody like Paul, and you can tell now that we've got to verse 7, that Paul was in prison when he wrote this. If somebody like Paul, a high-profile Christian, is in prison in Paul's day, you have one of two options. Number one, you can throw your lot in with Paul, defend him, stand up for him, make it known that, look, I'm going to share his reproach. He's my friend. He's the founder of our church. We're going to support him. We're going to stand by him. We're going to, we're going to pitch ourselves in with him, and, and we're behind him all the way. Or you could distance yourself from Paul, lest his reproach fall on you in some form. Right? You have two options. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, don't be ashamed of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. Because the temptation that Timothy faced, and it was a very real one, was that he would be ashamed not only to be called a Christian, but also to identify with Paul who was in prison. And the Philippians could have taken the same tack. They could have fallen to the temptation and said, look, we don't want to bear your reproach, We're going to distance ourselves from you. But that's not what the Philippians did. In his imprisonment, they identified with him. They sent Epaphroditus. They sent money. And they could have avoided a scandal of financially supporting a Roman prisoner who had a court date with Nero. And he was accused of stirring up sedition and sectarianism and committing sacrilege in every city that he visited. They could have distanced themselves from him, but they didn't. Paul says, you are partakers with me of my imprisonment. You are active active participants in my imprisonment. Not only that, but the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word defense was a legal term. So is the word confirmation. The term defense, apologia, is the word from which we get our English word apologetics. It means to issue a defense. In legal terms, it was used of standing in a court and, and, and sort of stating something, stating your case, or laying out your case, and defending yourself against accusations or against legal actions. Acts chapter 26, verse 2, Paul says, King Agrippa, in regard to all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate today that I can make my defense before you. It's a legal term. It means to present your case in court. Paul says, in my defense of the gospel, you're participants with me in grace. Now, how did Paul defend the gospel in Rome? Was he out on the streets articulating and talking and defending the gospel against attackers? Is that how he was doing it? He was under house arrest, right? 
He couldn't leave the city of Rome. You remember that from the end of the book of Acts? He couldn't leave his home, couldn't leave the city of Rome. He was a prisoner in his own home, guarded by a Roman centurion all the time. How was he defending the gospel? What was the real issue at the heart of his imprisonment and his trials and the accusations against him? What was the main issue? Was it sedition? Was it sectarianism? Was it sacrilege? What is it? Brethren, I am on trial today for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. That was the issue. What's the central doctrine of Christianity? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul looked at his legal trials, his court date with Nero, the defenses that he gave, and he said, look, the central issue is the resurrection. And if I can stand before the highest officials in the land and defend the Gospel against the adversaries of the Gospel, I will do it. Not only to defend Christianity, but also to confirm something. That meant to to guarantee or acquire security for something. It's like a precedent. We have that in our modern court setting. You go to court and the judges make a decision or the jury makes a decision and it sets a what? It sets a precedent. What does the precedent do? It establishes that something is either legitimate or illegitimate, legal or illegal, moral or immoral, right or wrong. That's what a precedent does. So the precedent would establish something by which other courts would view similar situations, similar cases, and make a decision because it establishes a precedent. That's kind of the word that Paul uses in confirmation. I'm actively involved in defending the gospel and in confirming the gospel. That is establishing or gaining security for the gospel. How would he do that? Well, if he stood before Nero, and Nero listened to the case, and then Nero said, you know what? Agrippa was right, Festus was right, Felix was right, and Lysias was right. You've done nothing deserving of imprisonment or of death. And if Nero just dismissed his case, acquitted Paul, got rid of the case, and said, you're innocent, what would that do for the gospel? Well, if the central issue is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then it would establish that central issue as being legitimate and legal, not only to believe in the resurrection, but to preach the resurrection. So Paul looked at his own imprisonment and he said, my ministry and my imprisonment and everything that I'm undergoing in my suffering is for the defense and the setting of the precedent of the gospel, the establishment of the gospel. Now, do you think that Paul was okay with that? Do you think that five years of denied and delayed justice, do you think that all that he had suffered and all that he had gone through, do you think that Paul was okay if all of that five years of what would us to us seem like wasted time would simply defend and confirm the gospel? Would he be fine with that? I think he'd be fine with that. You know why? Because in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, whether in pretense or in truth, as long as Christ is preached, whether I live or whether I die, as long as Christ is magnified in my body, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He would be happy to lay down his life and spend five years sitting and rotting in a prison. If that's the will of God and it results in the confirmation and the establishment and the defense of the gospel, then Paul would say, that's fine with me. I'm fine with not preaching as long as I can do something to defend the gospel. And that's how he viewed his court case. That's how he viewed his trial. Let me make one final observation here. Today you and I have the same responsibility that Paul had to defend the gospel. To have an apologia, an apologetic, a defense and a confirmation of the gospel. Because in every generation and in every day, the gospel is being attacked. It is always under attack. It's attack to, it's under attack today from postmodernists and emergent church types who try to, to, to thwart the gospel and to minimize the gospel and to water down the gospel and to deny the truth of the gospel. It's under attack by people who want to ignore everything about the gospel and just unite on all the good things that that bind us together. And they'll say all day long, 
while they're allowing the gospel to be attacked, they'll say all day long, we love the gospel and we're all about Jesus and the gospel. While the gospel gets short-circuited and cut out from underneath of everything that they do. Let me give you an illustration. What would you say if me if I said to you, I love my wife, while I stood by and watched her be beaten and ravaged and abused by a bunch of people? What would you think of me? And then what would you think of me if I said I love my wife and I watched her get beaten and abused and ravaged by a bunch of people, but then I went up to the very people abusing her and said, look, you and I may disagree about my wife, but we can find common cause on a whole lot of other issues, so let's just ignore what you're doing to my wife and let's get together and work together on the things that we can agree on. What would you say? You would say, Osman, you're a despicable human being and you'd be absolutely right. And yet today, it's exactly what happens in churches. Let's just ignore what the Catholics do and what the Mormons do and what the Episcopalians are doing and the Methodists are doing and the liberal Presbyterians are doing to the Gospel and the people who add to the Gospel. Let's just ignore all that. Let's just get all together on the things that unite us. You can't do that. Every generation, every group of Christians has to defend and confirm the Gospel. We have a responsibility to do that. That's the fellowship of the Gospel. And Paul says, your support of me and your prayer for me and your ministry to me while I'm involved in this is a partaking together of grace. We share together and we fellowship together. You and I fellowship and share together with people who are actively defending the Gospel when we pray for them and we give to them and we support them and we encourage them. We actively participate in that work. One last observation before we move on to the fountain of Christian affection. There is nothing like serving with someone and suffering with someone to knit your hearts together in Christian love. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. There is nothing, and this is what Paul and the believers in Philippi were doing. They had defended him and they had served with him and they had been together and they had fellowship together. And they, in serving the Lord together and in suffering together, there is something that happens to our hearts that is knit together in Christian love. It's difficult for me to explain this, but listen. My closest friends are co-laborers in Christ. My closest friends are co-laborers in Christ. They're not the people with whom I share a 49er bumper sticker. They're not the people who are my fellow gardeners or my fellow hobbyist woodworkers or my fellow outdoor enthusiasts. Those are not my closest friends. My closest friends are the people with whom I co-labor in the Gospel. And if all you do is sit on the sidelines and you never link arms and join hands and pray for and support and encourage and strive together for the faith of the Gospel with somebody, then you can't know that. But my closest friends are the ones with whom I have served. United in common purpose, focused on one thing of the same mind, striving together for the sake of the Gospel. That's the fellowship of Christian affection. And there's something in that striving together that knits our hearts together in love. Third, I want you to notice the fountain of Christian affection, and that's Christ. Paul says in verse 8, For God is my witness how I long for you all, with the affection of Christ Jesus. I long for you. Do you notice that statement? He longs to see them. He longs to impart to them some spiritual gift. He longs to be with them. He longs to serve with them. He longs to be free. He's expecting in chapter 2, verse, I think it's 24, to depart and to be with them, to go be released from prison and to go visit them in Philippi. And Paul says, I have this desire and this longing to see you. Now friends, I've got to ask you, do you have that kind of a longing for your Christian brethren? Sunday morning you wake up and you say, man, I can't wait to get to church. I long to see those people. <laughs> Do you have that? Do you have a love for the fellowship? Do you have a love for other Christians? If you don't, you really ought to examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. Because the Bible says that one of the marks of a genuine believer 
is their love for the brethren. And if you don't have that type of a longing and you don't have that type of love for somebody, you need to ask yourself, do I belong to Christ? That I don't love those who belong to Christ. And that my heart's desire and my heart's drive is to be with God's people. I'll be honest with you, there's no place in the world I would rather be on Sunday morning than right here with you. No place in the world. I I wouldn't miss this. You, You think I... You think I pastor because I get paid a lot of money, or you think I pastor, you think I'm here every Sunday because I have to preach? I'm not. If I didn't have to preach, I would still be here every Sunday. I would still be here every Sunday because I love the fellowship of people. And you couldn't keep me away from here with a draft uh, form of uh, plus tax. Start that over again. Sometimes I break out into the gift of tongues, and you just have to wait till I get done. You couldn't keep me away from here with a team of draft horses on a Sunday morning, because I love the brethren. And I'll tell you something, before I got saved, that was not me. I wouldn't have loved any one of you for all of the money in the world. I couldn't have. But I know, you know how I know I'm saved? You know the confidence and the assurance I have? I love Christians. And I long to be with Christians. I would do this every morning if I could. I'd do it every morning, because that's whom I love to be with, my brethren. Paul says, I long for you with the affection. That's a wonderful word. Splachnon. The affection. I love that word. Splachnon. You know what it means? It means guts. That's what it means. When it was used literally in the Bible, it's actually only used literally in the New Testament one time, back in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, where it speaks of Judas's suicide, and he fell headlong, and he burst open in the middle, and his splachnon gushed out. That's the word for guts. It's, it's, it means when it, sometimes it was used of nobler organs, like the heart and the liver and the lungs, but oftentimes it was just used of the guts. I love you with the guts of Christ Jesus. Now, when it's used figuratively, it means deep affection. And we use sort of the same type of terminology today, figuratively. I love you with all my heart, right? What do we mean? We mean that from the innermost part of our being comes all of this deep affection. Same thing in Paul's day. I love you with the bowels, the guts of Jesus Christ. Used figuratively, he's saying this love that I have comes from deep, deep within me. I love you with the splachnon. Now that word sounds like guts, doesn't it? It sounds like what it means. It sounds like a German word. I will rip out your splachnon. <laughs> that probably sounds more Russian than German, but it, it sounds like any kind of an Eastern European sort of a, a term for guts. A bug hits your windshield, splachnon. <laughs> you run over a squirrel, or better yet, a cat, splachnon. That is a wonderful word, and it means literally the deepest part of my being. Because in Paul's day, in his culture, they would speak of a love that came from way down deep in an individual. I have this splachnon for you. Now, why do I bring that up? Simply because I like the word? I do like the word. But there's something else that's significant there. Notice that it's not the splachnon of Paul. What is it? Of Christ Jesus. As one author put it, Paul did not live in Paul, but Christ Jesus did which is why Paul was not moved by the bowels of Paul, but by the bowels of Jesus Christ. And by bowels, he means affections. See, friends, it's Christ in you that gives you that kind of love for people. It's not something that you grit your teeth and you bear it and you try and muster it up from within your individual self. But when Christ is in you, there is in you also the splachnon of Christ Jesus, that deep affection for the things that He loves. If He is in you, and if He's living in you, if it's Christ in you that's the hope of glory, if you can honestly say, for me to live is Christ, 
and to die is gain, then you will love what Christ loves, hate what Christ hates, be where Christ is at, have affection for the things that Christ has affection for. The things that move Him will move you. And the things that He loves, you will love. Why? Because it is the splachnon of Christ. Not my own affection. Not my own bowels. Not my own person that moves me to love somebody and to have affection for somebody. But it's that deep, tender, mercy, compassionate affection of Christ and Christ Himself. That's the fountain of Christian affection. It doesn't come from within us. It comes from Christ in us. And if Christ is not in you, if for you to live is not Christ, you have no ability to love anybody like that. You'll never be able to say of anybody, I long for you, to be with you, to spend time with you, to share with you, to minister to you, to serve you. You'll never be able to say that. Because the bowels of Jesus Christ, the affection of Christ, does not reside in you. Now whenever I come across a passage like this, in the New Testament, I'm always encouraged. One like I just read. And I'll tell you why I'm encouraged. Because I look around this church week after week after week and I see a tremendous amount of love one for another that the saints have. I see it in the, the meals that you prepare for each other, the things that you give to each other. I see it in the prayer chain and people are actively praying for and updating each other about what goes on. I see it on Friday nights when you sacrifice a night of your week so that you can come here and share Christ with kids on Friday night and to strive together for the faith of the Gospel. I see it in the in the service that you render, in the things that you do, in the phone calls that you make, in the encouragement cards that you write, I see the love of Christ manifested in so many ways. It's a tremendous encouragement to me. And then I realize it's not anything that I do. It's not anything that the elders do. It's not anything that you're doing, really. What is it? It's the affection of Jesus Christ, which is evident in our church. And that's not to say that you and I are perfect in this. I often think of what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He says, Brethren, concerning the love of the brethren, you have no need that I even write to you. Why? Because you're taught by God how to love each other, and you're also doing it loving all the brethren in all of Macedonia. You've got this one nailed down, Paul says. You know, it, I don't even have to mention this. When it comes to the love of the brethren, you people are exceptional, he says to the Thessalonians. But then he says this at the end. But brethren, we urge you to excel still more. Do it still more. Listen, do you have the love of Christ for the person sitting in the pew next to you? Do you have the love of Christ for your brother in Christ? It may be there, and it's evident. For some of you, it's very evident. But I would say this. Do it all the more. There's always room for growth in our love one for another. And once again, it's not that we say, okay, <clears throat> I'm going to love. I'm going to grit my teeth, and I'm going to show myself how to love. It's Christ in you. For me to live as Christ, if you can say that, then you'll have all of the splachnon of Jesus Christ that you need to have for your brethren. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you for your goodness to us and loving us first before we could ever love you. And we know that our heart's desire is to have this type of love, this type of longing and desire that Paul evidenced, that Paul wrote about, and that is mirrored even so dimly in some of us. We ask that you would open up our hearts to love one another and give us the grace to have that deep, abiding love of Christ and affection one for another that we need. Help us to be encouraged to do that. Give us opportunities to do it. And continue to manifest that goodness and that love of the brethren in each one of us, we ask. All to the praise of your glorious grace in Christ Jesus. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.